This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Dave Reepstein, and you're joining us here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, you can hear us every week on Sirius XM Channel 111 on Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern and replayed throughout the week. Um, I have with me my co-host, Bruce Brownstein, who is joining me. And uh, Bruce, glad to have you here. Welcome and, back from Wharton West. Well, thank you. I enjoyed my time out at Wharton West and looking forward to uh, a really great show today. So uh, you and I have been doing some work in the area of, uh, of nation branding. And today we're going to spend our time talking about nation branding. And rather than just talking about the concept of it, we're going to be able to go dive deep and, and, uh, and look at it. Um, and joining us to have that conversation, we are very, very fortunate to have with us Ambassador Ido Aharoni, uh, who is the ambassador from, uh, from Israel. And uh, he resides in New York, has lived in the United States for a while, but he's going to be joining us. And then in the second half hour, uh, we're going to have David Sable, who is the CEO, the global CEO of Young and Rubicam. And, uh, and he's been also doing some work with, uh, with Israel and has also been working with us on, uh, on nation branding. So it's, it's a very interesting topic, and I'm delighted to be, uh, to be talking about it. Um, my view is that brands play a role for every company and that bland, brands contribute to a company by either allowing them some loyalty amongst their fans, but it also is reflected in, uh, in either their ability to charge higher prices or some added market share. But in the same sense that a company has a brand, um, nations have brands also. Whether they want to or not, whether they invest in it or not, they, they have some role. And, um, and we have with us, as I mentioned earlier, we have the ambassador from Israel, Ido Aharoni, who's going to be joining us. But before I introduce him, let me remind our audience that at any time you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. So let's get started. So... Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you, for Professor Ripstein, for having me. Thank you, Bruce. Okay. From now on, you're calling me Dave, okay? I'll call you Dave. Okay. So just as an introduction, um, as I understand it, and I'm looking at a long resume of yours, that I, if I went through the resume, we wouldn't have time to do the show. So I'm going to try and be relatively brief. But you served in the Israeli Defense Forces as a company commander in the infantry during the First Lebanese War. And you continued to uh, serve in the military. And at the age of 48, you retired as a major. Um, you're married to a native of, of, uh, of the U.S. from Los Angeles. And you've got three beautiful children, uh, I understand. Um, you have served in various different roles. Um, and you were appointed to serve as the head of Israel's brand management team in Jerusalem, which I think is really wonderful that there is somebody who's got brand management who works for the government. And so I, I, I'm going to have to hear a little bit about that. Um, but, and so get me started in that in just a second. But five years ago, four years ago, a little bit more than four years ago, you assumed the post of Council General of Israel in New York. And, uh, and you have been serving in that role ever since. Is that right? Yes, yes. Okay, so what's the deal? Why is it there is a, somebody in charge of a brand um, and, and, and for a nation or for a city, as you were doing it for Jerusalem, and to, to a very large degree, you're in charge of the Israeli brand. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Well, you know, a place, uh, certainly a, an open, vibrant, dynamic place like Israel cannot really have one person that is in charge of the whole brand. What you can do is try and help with the management of the various dimensions, with the various um, uh, expressions of the uh, performance of the brand. Um, the whole idea of engaging in country positioning or country branding 
uh, really emerged from the days after 9-11 when we understood that something dramatic happened to the positioning of Israel in the world. And we started a process of soul-searching that, and in that process, we discovered something amazing, in fact, astonishing. We discovered that the state of Israel never uh, seriously, systematically studied its own performance as a brand independently. We relied. So is is that common for yeah. for a nation to study their brand? Yes, it's very no. It's very common for nations not to study their brand, but rather to rely on studies performed by others. Not realizing that sometimes, whether it's a think tank or an institution or a company or an organization, they always have an agenda, and you have to perform your own independent research in order to understand. What is your positioning in the world? Is that part of your responsibility today? Well, yes, absolutely. And in fact, your next guest, uh, David Sable, is the person who introduced me to one of those research mechanisms. Uh, and we added Israel to that research mechanism back in 2003. And for the first time in the history of the state of Israel, we received a an accurate depiction, a beautiful picture of where we are. And it was uh, an eye-opening experience because it was very different than our gut feelings. It was very different than what we thought. So most of the time when you get results back that do not conform with what you thought, you just reject the results. Was that the natural inclination? And particularly when I think about what I know about Israel, you know, a strong-minded, I'm just going to reject these results? Well, probably among, you know, for some people that's the case, but I was trained by social scientists and I studied sociology and social anthropology and I studied film and television and critical thinking is part of the way we're being brought up in Israel. I was taught that the two most important words in science are so what. <laughs> and so um, and so that's what we did. We looked at the research, we looked at the findings um, that contradicted everything that we knew up until that point. And we said, um, let's, um, let's try and look at the problem differently. Let's try to tackle this issue using tools that come from a different discipline. In this case, tools that come from psychology, from social psychology, uh, tools that come from the discipline of marketing, um, tools that come from uh, social research and not necessarily from political science and international relations as most governments do. Very, very interesting. So you've done the research. What's Israel's brand around the world? And I, and I suspect it's very different what part of the, of the world we're talking about. Exactly. So we started studying uh, the brand Israel in the U.S. and in Europe, and what we discovered is that there is a tremendous gap between perception and reality, Brand Israel was uh, 12, 13 years ago universally, predominantly associated with conflict, with tension, with bloodshed, uh, with confrontation. Very little um, knowledge, perception, very little awareness to other dimensions of the brand. And so we uh, decided to do two things. First, identify the reason for that. And secondly, try to develop an effective strategy to close that gap. And uh, we realize this is not going to happen overnight. This is a, uh, a long-term prospect. But we realize at one point you have to start. And so we included Israel in, uh, in the database in 2003. Implementations of the strategy started sporadically in 2004, 2005. In 2008, we engaged in a more systematic effort and I can tell you, bringing on board other governmental agencies, other organizations, we really started to see the needle moving uh, by about 2009, 2010. So the image of Israel, um, what, do you think, what do you think the image of Israel is in the United States? Well, still in the United States, the most uh, prevailing conversation is the conversation about Israel in the context of its geopolitical hardships. It's very difficult to run away from it, not that we try to run away from it. We don't think it's the, it's the way to go. Uh, we believe in um, that the conflict, the, uh, we call it the unhappy circumstances of our region, is part of who we are. It's part of our resume. Whether we like it or not, this is who we are. But I believe that today you see more and more evidence to the wide recognition Israel is, uh, is gaining uh, as a bastion of creativity, whether it's in the field of high tech 
or whether it's in even it's in Hollywood. You know, Israel is the third largest provider of content to Hollywood today. It's hard for people to believe that. But uh, but this is one of the uh, manifestations of Israeli creativity. So my belief is that there's this wide disparity even within the United States. If we go globally, it'd even be uh, uh, much greater. But within the United States, there's some people, most of them Jews, who really understand and spend a lot of time and, and have a natural positive affinity. Um, there's others that may be in high tech that have had to interact with uh, with Israel quite a bit, and they have this great positive you know, association with the creativity and the innovation coming out of Israel. There's probably some in Hollywood that have, you know, recognize all the content that's coming. But then there's two other groups, one which also has a negativity towards Israel, and then there's a third that is uh, in a third group, not in terms of size, a third group that just doesn't know anything. Right. And, and they have no idea that, that right. technology comes from Israel. They have no idea that uh, Hollywood comes from Israel. Um, and I suspect that third group is the biggest one. Absolutely. That's what our research shows. You're absolutely correct. 75% of the people have no position on the situation in the Middle East. And therefore, this is our room to grow. And uh, that's the way we look at it. It's a great opportunity. We don't think it's an obstacle. We see it as a great opportunity. And we embarked on a study a couple of years ago that looked at 14 different nations, 14 different societies, 14 different cultures that are important for Israel. And we tested among them 11 different stories. We wanted to know which of the 11 stories that we told them about Israel will be viewed by them not only as credible, and reliable, but also as authentic and attractive. It's not an easy task. And the one story that emerged universally from Japan through China all the way to Russia, Poland, Canada, Mexico, the United States, is the story of Israel as a place of creativity and inspiration. The story of Israel's creative spirit, which helps Israel also to survive, because you can't survive in our region without being creative emerged as the most reliable, attractive, and authentic narrative, national narrative. And so we, um, uh, we decided to embrace this as the strategy, and we are working now to highlight um, uh, Israel's uh, creative and inspirational dimensions. And there are several programs that we <laughs> engaged in that um, are meant to, uh, to tell the story of Israel as a place of creative spirit. So um, why, why do you care what the image is? What, what difference does it make to Israel what people in other parts of the world think about Israel? Um, the, the simple short answer to your question is because your brand image, your brand capital is part and parcel with your national security. People in Israel were um, led to believe that national security begins and ends with military power. Um, and we live in a different world today. Uh, national security um, has everything to do with the strength of your economy, with the strength of your society, with the strength of your tourism industry. Tourism is a huge agent of change. Every person that has a positive experience in Israel becomes a brand ambassador. Every person who has a positive experience in the United States as a tourist goes back, goes back to his home as a brand ambassador for the United States. And we um, have to realize that. And uh, it was an uphill battle within Israel to convince people of the importance. But thank God to uh, people like Sasha Baron Cohen and Borat that taught us a very important lesson about the importance of country image as part of its national security. Because what happened with Borat in Kazakhstan was a fascinating case study for us. It's an eye-opener. I want, I want to hear that story, but let me first remind our audience, you're listening to Measured Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And at any time, any of you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We have a very special guest that's, that's with us, the uh, Israeli ambassador to the United States, uh, Ido Aharoni. And uh, you might want to give us a call and see uh, what questions it is that you have. Um, 
while while you are here, and and he currently is is the council general in New York City, and so I want to make sure that that we have a, a correct uh, uh, identification of his title. Um, so. I want to hear the Borac story because you just said that Borac was really important for the branding of Kazakhstan. That was sort of a negative representation, and and I suspect people in Kazakhstan were pretty negative about uh, how he portrayed them. Well, maybe at first. I don't know how they feel nowadays, but I can tell you that uh, Sasha Baron Cohen did something very interesting that is indirectly helping us understanding the importance of brand capital in the context of, of nation branding because he almost single-handedly created a new identity to the nation of Kazakhstan, uh, whether you like it or not. And the only reason why he was able to do it through this fictitious character that he created called Borat, the journalist who comes to visit America, he taught us a very important lesson. If you, in the field of nation branding, will not take the proactive approach and define your own brand identity to the world, rest assured your competition will do it for you. There is no vacuum. And Israel, unfortunately, uh, for many years, did not take the proactive approach. Uh, We uh, wanted to win a debate with our adversaries and our detractors, and we engaged wholeheartedly in this debate. And we forgot that no brand can thrive on crisis management alone. No brand can thrive by constantly highlighting its deficiencies and imperfections publicly. Uh, You can't uh, win that uh, marketing uh, campaign by talking about your problems. And that's what we did. So we came along with the help of great people like David Sable and, and, and others, and we said, guys, it's time to go back to the basics of marketing. We need to talk about the advantages of the product, not the problems of the product. Um, And so we introduced a whole different approach to Israeli diplomacy by um, the marriage of marketing and branding with with diplomacy. And um, if you may, today I believe it's the fastest growing branch of diplomacy. It's called public diplomacy today. So um, the name of this show is Measured Thoughts. Um, What do you measure to see how well you're doing? Well, we have several uh, mechanisms that we use. The first, of course, is research. And here we have uh, several, uh, you know, we have the country brand index, which Israel is performing better every year. We have the the United Nations Human Development Index. Israel is doing better every year. We have the BAV, the Brand Asset Valuator, maintained by uh, WPP and uh, Young and Rubicam, where Israel is being monitored since 2003. And uh, as well as other sub-brands like Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, monitored separately. But the most important thing are the numbers on the ground. So the most important number is, of course, the performance in the field of tourism. Tourism tells you a lot about the strength of the brand. I'm happy to say that in the last five years, we had four consecutive years. In each and every one of them, we broke the record. Incoming tourism, most of the growth actually comes from Russia and the Ukraine these days. And the number of Russian-speaking tourists that is coming to Israel every year now equals the number of tourists coming from North America. Even with the downturn in the Russian economy? Yes. Yes. And it has everything to do with, um, with the fact that, um, that Israel is doing uh, the right thing. We removed the visa barrier from Russia and the Ukraine. We're investing more in marketing. Uh, so tourism is, an, is, a, is a clear indication Another indication that we have, of course, is in the size and the scope of the coverage of the other conversation. So Middle East coverage is a given. What about the other conversation? So uh, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of members of the Foreign Press Corps that visited Israel over the last 10 years. And they put on the map the Israeli cuisine, the Israeli wine industry, Israeli lifestyle, Israeli design, Israeli fashion, Israeli um, content. Uh, shows that Americans uh, enjoy on television, like HBO, in treatment, the affair uh, originate from Israel or were uh, created in collaboration with Israeli talent. And so that's another way to measure. And then, of course, we'll look at the numbers. How many dollars were we able to attract as a nation? And uh, and here, too, you see a— And uh, dollars in what form are you talking about? Foreign investment, foreign, direct, foreign direct investment. investment. Foreign direct investment is on the rise— uh, you see more and more Israeli companies 
are doing business in the world, which is a strength, a sign of strength. We have, believe it or not, we have over 400 Israeli technology companies operating in New York alone, 400. And their contribution to the economy of New York is huge. A study that was commissioned by the Jewish Federation in Boston concluded that Israeli technology companies in Massachusetts are making a contribution that is equal to $3 billion a year just for the state of Massachusetts. Wow. And, and that's a great sign of the, um, it's a testimony to the, to the strength of the ties between the two brands. And the more uh, interaction you have with the world, the stronger your brand is. And that's the case with, uh, with Israel. So all these things going on that are coming out of Israel, um, they don't have a strong Israeli branding association. So I look at, you know, everybody knows Samsung is from Korea. Everybody knows that Toyota is from Japan. Uh, you're telling me there's all this content and technology uh, uh, coming out of Israel, uh, and we don't know that. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. The... Israel has several, historically, several sub-brands that emerged over the years. All of them, because of the dominance of the geopolitics in our, in our uh, brand personality attributes, uh, all of them were, um, had something to do with security. So it's the Israel Defense Forces that in America, especially among members of the Jewish community, is perhaps the strongest brand associated with Israel is the Israel Defense Forces, IDF. Mossad, very powerful brand worldwide. Worldwide, Mossad is also a brand that uh, corresponds uh, primarily with the security situation, with our security predicament. Then you have the Uzi, submachine gun. It's an Israeli brand. Okay, so we have all this association with, with defense. The challenge today, and I believe that the, um, the hope to be able to uh, develop a sub-brand that will have a wide recognition worldwide is perhaps on the municipal level. And I'm referring to Tel Aviv, which is making huge progress as a leading beacon sub-brand, as we call it in our prof professional language, and Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has is, um, is, is been there for ages, but it's a very powerful brand. Um, perhaps the number one brand that we have today is Jerusalem. And I think Tel Aviv is emerging um, as the big promise of, uh, of Israeli sub-brand. So, but you've got a challenge, and the challenge is, what do we see in the press and you sort of referred to this early. The only thing we see in the press is when there's hostility in the Middle East. And then what within that, what we see is Israel doing well and the Hamas or whoever, uh, or whomever, is not doing so well. Um, we don't get in the press, you know, the content that's coming out. How do you try and deal with that? Well, there are two ways to deal with it. The first is to improve the way you manage crisis. And what you mentioned, the, the confrontation that we had last summer with Hamas is a perfect example of a crisis. And that has to be handled by the government. And, and my government, I think, does a pretty good job handling uh, the crisis. And, but at the same time, you have to be able to implement a long-term strategy that corresponds well with the crisis but does not necessarily deal directly with the crisis. The crisis gives you an opportunity to highlight other facets of your brand uh, because you're already there. That's one of the gifts, the benefits of what Borat did to Kazakhstan is that he pushed them over the threshold. He actually brought them to the level of public awareness for free. Right. And this is something that other brands invest billions in reaching the level of public awareness, he gave this to them as free for free, and I'm not sure they actually realized the size of the gift that he gave them. Uh, but but that's where we are. We are at the center of attention, and what I'm saying is this is a great opportunity. It's not just a challenge. It is a challenge, but it is also a great opportunity to push forward the kind of conversation that uh, benefits the brand. And in our case... It's a broader conversation than the existing conversation. We cannot eliminate the existing conversation. I don't think it's necessary. I think that the 
hardships of our region is a part of who we are, but what we need to do, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we engage in a broader conversation about Israel that tells the full story. Well, unfortunately, one of the things that's been in the news more recently has been when the prime minister came over and spoke to Congress and sort of the reaction um, or, you know, the, the attitude by President Obama. And it looks like there's a little bit of a rift between Israel and the United States as a result. How have you tried dealing with that? And, and also, do you measure that? Well, you know, I try to deal with that just like any other diplomat. It's not part of, um, of the marketing effort. This is a strictly policy issue. What you have here is a friendly disagreement between two allies about something. By the way, it's not just Israel. I think most of the countries in our region, the Arab countries in our region, uh, would uh, would side with the Israeli position. And, uh, you know, we feel that uh, this is our historical obligation to, uh, to say it the way it is. We think that the idea of allowing uh, the world's most dangerous regime, the number one producer of state terrorism in the world, Iran, gain access to the world's most dangerous weapon is a very bad idea. And we simply made it known to the world. This is our position. And it's okay to have disagreements uh, among friends. I can tell you that at the same time that we disagree on the Iran deal uh, with the international community, um, we have never had a better, deeper uh, partnership with the United States, especially with the uh, security establishment. Uh, So, um, uh, you know, among friends, and the United States is our best friend, and we believe we are America's best ally in the Middle East, it's okay sometimes to disagree, and that's what you saw. That, that's very much a, a uh, with my experience in Israel, has been one of open disagreement is sort of just a lifestyle. It's less of a lifestyle in the United States, and if you go to Japan or something, you would never have a, a public confrontation. So I wonder if the style was something that was a little bit hard for, um, for America to handle. Well, I... Couldn't agree more about the style of, uh, of uh, you know, the Israeli culture is based on the, um, on the permission you're given to argue, on the permission you're given is to— Is that permission or obligation? <laughs> it's, yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with the Jewish tradition. Uh, where in Judaism, you're given permission to challenge authority. Abraham was arguing with the Almighty. And, um, and it's something that is part of the DNA of our tradition, of our, of our culture, of our religion. And um, if you look at what Zionism was all about, it was really about the refusal to accept limitations. It was, it was about challenging authority. Here you, you, you brought a group of people, uh, idealists, uh, revolutionaries. You dumped them in the middle of the desert and you told them, here, build a kibbutz. Do something with the desert. And they did. And they created something that is beautiful. And, um, and, uh, and I think that this is uh, certainly part of our culture. There's no question about it. So, well, I, I'm, I'm hoping that it is understood and received in the correct spirit within the United States. Because I think there are some people that might say, I wonder if our friendship that you just described is being challenged right now. You know, the prime minister said it in his own words and in his own voice that there was no intention to embarrass the president in any way, shape, or form. And he meant it. I was there with him. And he is very passionate on the Iranian issue. And I have to tell you, he is speaking on behalf of all Israelis, left and right, on this issue. When he came to Congress, he he spoke out of 100% consensus. And it has to be understood that this is not a political partisan issue. This is about us living in the most dangerous area in the world. And there is a neighbor, Iran, that is constantly calling for the annihilation of the state of Israel. And we just feel that giving them access to nuclear weapons is not a good thing. Okay, well, this is not a program about politics, so I'll I'll try. But I am concerned about the impact that has on one's brand. So we're going to continue some of the overall dialogue about how you manage your brand and think about that. But we're going to take a short break, but please do stay with us. When we come back, uh, the uh, the General Counsel of Israel in New York and the Ambassador, Ido Aharoni, is going to be with us for the second half hour. But we're also going to be joined 
by the global CEO of uh, Young and Rubicam, David Sable. So please do uh, stay with us when we come back. You will be able to give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four. 942-7866 or send us an email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com This is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 111 You're listening to Measured Thoughts on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School SiriusXM 111 Here again is David Reepstein. Welcome back. This is Measured Thoughts, and I'm Dave Reepstein, and you're listening to Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Um, I am also joined with my co-host, Bruce Brownstein. Bruce, welcome. Thanks. Yeah, glad to have you here. I need to hear a little more from you in this half hour, um, okay? I'm enjoying listening and anxious to hear what the next great Israeli brands are. Okay, so we've had the first half hour that we had with... uh, Ambassador Ido Aharoni, who's the General Counsel of Israel and of New York, and uh, very glad to have you with us. I do want to remind the audience that if at any time you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, or send us an email at businessradio at siriusxm.com. Um, and you could also uh, tweet us at biz, B-I-Z radio, 111. Um, I did want to ask you, uh, Ido, um, what it is that uh, you have a budget for trying to help the Israeli uh, image, right? Yeah, very modest. Modest budget. If, if the Israeli government, and by the way, every chief marketing officer says, oh, my budget is very modest. So <laughs> I, I hear that. But if, if you had your budget doubled, what would you spend on? The most important thing, in my view, is to bring people of influence, members of the media, influencers and in social networks, uh, to visit Israel, um, to see for themselves what the brand is all about. There's nothing like the experiential dimension of brand building. And we have a wonderful program, in uh, which is a, a joint venture of the Jewish community and, and Israel, called Birthright Israel. Birthright Israel is a program that sends to Israel for a 10-day educational visit uh, people of Jewish background, people that are Jewish. To date, nearly half a million people, mostly from North America, visited Israel. And I can tell you that the uh, amount of images, the number of images that they posted online is estimated in the hundreds of millions of um, uncensored, authentic images that tell the full story. And we're not afraid of criticism because we believe in our brand. And we believe that we have a very powerful brand, and it's okay not to, to agree with Israeli policies. Most Israelis don't agree. You know, Israelis are very critical of Israel. Just as we talked about, that's sort of the culture to try. That's, all, and, and that's to try the culture. And, and when people complain to me about the press in, in Europe or the press in America, I, I, the first thing I do, I send them to read the press in Israel. The press yeah. in Israel is, is, is very critical of the Israeli government, and they're very critical of what we do. And that's okay. That's part of being a democracy. Right. Well, I want to get a different perspective, and, and we are now going to be joined by David Sable, who is the global CEO of YNR. Bruce said to me I should introduce him as the madman. Uh, sort of poster Current child, day, right? right? That's, that's exactly what it is. He's got a long history of being in various different roles in advertising, and YNR is one of the dominant uh, ad agencies in New York. So, David, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Thank you. It's an honor to be talking with you. Well, it's an honor for us, and we've had this first half hour with a very uh, interesting conversation with Ambassador Aharoni. And... Um, he has referenced uh, YNR and BAV and some of the work that you've done for them. And um, maybe you could help us understand some of the type of work that you do in, uh, in helping countries, and I assume not just Israel, in understanding their national brand. Sure, absolutely. Um, so first of all, hello to everybody in the, uh, in the studio and the ambassador. Always, uh, always good to be on a panel with you. Nation branding has become quite the business these days, but let me go back some 14 years before it actually was. And the ambassador asked me to, we had been talking a lot about branding 
and I don't think the term nation branding had actually been coined yet. And we talked about Israel as a brand, and could you look at it as a brand, and, and how might it look? And I had done a little bit of work during my time living in Israel around that notion. And we took our BAV. So BAV is Brand Asset Valuator. It's a proprietary study. Uh, it's about 20 years old. It was created by Young and Rubicam. And it really changed the way the industry looks at brands. Because up until the time we fielded Brand Asset Valuator, people would line up similar brands. You know, it's brands that it sort of did the same thing, so they'd put all the soda and say, which do you like better? Which cola do you like better? And you'd say, I like Coke, I like Pepsi. What we did is we said, you know, what if we just assumed that brands are brands, ergo every brand has a set of characteristics that could be looked at the same way as another brand, whether it was a country, whether it was a, a can of tuna fish or soda pop or a service like Amex or whatever. And we asked in a non-referential way consumers about these brands. We asked them the same question. So then we could create this huge database that would revolve around attributes. And we could look at those attributes and say, well, what does this brand have in common with another? And it could be any brand in the world. And Ito had asked us, did we have any countries in there? And we did. We had we obviously looked at U.S., we looked at France at the time, Japan, um, U.K., some of the bigger countries. And we made a presentation for them. And it was fascinating. I think it was fascinating to everybody in the room. It was a, a room filled with uh, his fellow consul generals from around the United States. And what was interesting was we started pre-9-11, post-9-11, and we looked at, at, at Japan, the U.K., and France from a U.S. point of view. And what was really interesting was that you could see how after 9-11, the brand power of France dropped. And as we all know, we had that whole issue of the overflies and, uh, you know, freedom, freedom fries and, and whatever else. Right, right. And we looked and we saw it, but we didn't just say that the brand power dropped. What we did is we layered in the information on imports and exports and the huge drop in commerce between the U.S. and France during the same period that the brand dropped. Oh, so, so that's precisely what I'm interested in looking at is how a change in your brand affects some of the economic factors. And oh, I get, totally. It, it affects economic factors. It affects tourism. And that's a whole study. It's, this is a whole separate discussion, but it's a whole study that we're doing. Um, Ito has been a, a tremendous part of this together with the, the Wart School of Business. And we'll have this, we'll have this study out uh, in, in the next uh, few months. I think the, the issue was... That I, I, fe I feel back. the pressure from you already, but go ahead. <laughs> oh, my God. You, yeah. can't, you can't imagine. We, we hope actually to, to uh, unveil a huge part of this at, at Davos next year, um, together with U.S. News and World Report. So it's going to be a very exciting, it's going to be a very, very exciting study. But I think what was really important is we came out of that presentation and we said, you know what, let's put Israel in, and we did. And since then, um, we have been running this study for... Uh, the ambassador for the foreign ministry, and they've been receiving the updates on a, on a regular basis over the past 14 years. So Ido was telling us about um, his role within, uh, you know, within Israel and how he's trying to help uh, develop the brand. He, I have heard him define himself as the chief marketing officer of Israel, and I, it sounds like that's a large part of what he uh, he does, although I'm sure he does a lot of other things that he doesn't talk to me about. Um, do other nations have such, such roles and, and invest in trying to affect their, uh, their brand? Oh, absolutely. Um, Singapore is a great example, by the way. Singapore might be one of the best examples in the world. But I think just about every, every country today takes the time um, to think about their brand, to think about how their actions affect their imports, affect affect immigration, affect the price of housing, affect tourism, um, affect business, just business visits. Uh, I, I think, you know, if you just, just watch, you know, any, any set of advertisements anyplace, online, on television, wherever, and just look at the, at the stuff you see from abroad, even, from, even just think about American cities. 
that run it. I just saw Michigan is, for example, is running a whole series. You know how Ann Arbor is a great place. Michigan's a place of ideas. And, you know, and we've just, seen the I Love New York campaign for a long, long time. And the and I so, Love New York campaign is one of the most iconic. I worked at Wellsrich Green at the time. It was one of the most iconic campaigns. Or, or what happens time. in Vegas stays in Vegas. Stays in Vegas, yeah, absolutely. So some of those are strictly about tourism. Others are about tourism and business. Some are about both. But it's, it is a very, very powerful tool. And I think that countries, countries, cities, regions, states, that think about their brand and work on their brand do better, do better in business environment, do better in a, in a tourism environment, do better in a you know, general overall environment. Well, what we just saw happen this weekend was that Hillary Clinton announced she's running for president. Hmm. Um, we have also recently seen an election that just took place within Israel. And I guess my question for both of you is, how does the government leader play a role in, in the country's branding? Oh, you'd like me to go first? I, I, well, definitely. You're the ambassador. The, the, ambassador always yeah, goes first. the political leadership of any place, whether it's a city or, or a country, um, plays a key role uh, to the extent um, sometimes they're being perceived as the uh, embodiment of, of their own brand. Um, and so there's a, there's a direct a correlation. Uh, but at the same time, because every politician is an elected official and the political leadership by definition has opposition, uh, the downside of this embrace uh, may be, um, you know, uh, criticism from the opposition, whether uh, what you did is right or wrong is irrelevant in the eyes of the opposition because they're getting paid to be against you. And I think if you look historically, that's what happened in England with Cool Britannia, which was a great attempt. And I and I happened to see the research at the time, and I thought that they had great strategy for Cool Britannia. But once the political leadership claimed credit for it, the opposition turned against it. It happened in Nigeria. It happened in uh, in other places. So the government, um, the, one of the most important lessons that I learned in this. The government has to take a step back and let the people own the process and let partnerships drive the process forward. Without forming partnerships and coalitions, you won't be able to do anything. And the partnerships have to involve the private sector. They have to involve the NGOs, the non-governmental se sector. They have to involve the parties. They have to involve the institutions. Otherwise, if you don't have those elements, and what happened in New York, the, the ability of New York to get out of the crisis of the, uh, of the early 70s to what it is today is only because all those elements that I just mentioned decided to partner and to work together. Yeah. Dave, do you have a, a sense on that? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just add a little bit to that. You know, my, my view is as follows. The power of the brand has to be bigger. You know, the brand is a... By definition, a brand is the sum of all the positives and negatives that people perceive it to be. And so the brand, from a certain point of view, has to be bigger than any one crisis, right? So, you know, we go back and we see Tylenol, we see Coke, we see brands that went through terrible, terrible crises, and some have BP, and survived it because the power of the brand was so strong. So, yes, a, a political leader has an effect, there's no question. But if the power of the brand is big enough, it transcends that period of time. It transcends that, that leader. Now, you know, again, good leader, bad leader can, can bring it up a bit, bring it down a bit. But it can't, it's hard to kill a great brand like that. So the power so, of the brand greater, greater than the impact of the leader. Oh, my God, it has to be. Well, okay, so let me try and test that. And, and I'm only going to ask this question because the ambassador said I could ask him just anything. I'm going to reverse it. I want to know about brand U.S. within Israel um, and how having Obama as our president has had an impact. Well, first of all, I would say that Israelis feel that they are, from a cultural perspective, part of the United States. And so your president is our president by definition, no matter where they come from, which party they belong to because we have no other president. 
As uh, my uh, father used to say, America is our insurance policy. It's our insurance policy. And that's the way the average Israeli looks at it. And we have to understand that. We see ourselves as an outpost of your values in our region. But Israelis uh, do make a distinction between the politics of a leader and what the nation represents. The United States, unquestionably, is the strongest country brand in the world. There's no doubt in my mind. And Israelis feel that way. And the strength of your brand, to my mind, stems from the um, tight compatibility that exists between your DNA, which is all about freedom, and your performance. You support your DNA, your strategic claim to be a bastion of freedom in every dimension of your performance, in every step, in every action. United States is um, a promise well delivered. Okay, well put, well put. Um, so I'm going to ask each of you this question, which is, as you look at other nations and what they've done to affect their brand, because what you both told me is that Israel's not the only country that cares about this. Every country cares about it. What other nations have you seen do things that you can learn from, either good or bad, and that you would want to import into what you're doing? Well, I think I would use uh, certainly the example of Spain in the 80s as a perfect example of a country that actually got it. And um, Spain in the early 80s was still battling the image of the uh, Franco era. Uh, it was uh, viewed as um, as industrial, uh, non-democratic, uh, gray, not colorful. And they decided to go with this uh, terrific brand that relied on their natural assets and mostly the climate. And they came up with this uh, everything under the sun concept that said we are a place of diversity, we are a place of inclusion, we're a place of fun, and they invested heavily in improving the brand. So they built museums. Uh, we have such opportunities as well. We own the brand Albert Einstein, Hebrew what, University. What, what do you mean you own the brand Albert Einstein? Well, believe it or not, when Albert Einstein died in 1955, he, 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 left, left, he left you his brand? He left the rights to use his name to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, he was one of the founders of the Hebrew University. And he founded the Hebrew University alongside um, Heim Weizmann, was the head of the Zionist movement at the time, Zygmunt Freud, Martin Buber, and others. And um, he that was his baby, the Hebrew University. So when he died, he left everything, including his um, study, his uh, all of his academic work. We have the original manuscript of the theory of relativity in our possession. We have parts of his brain, if you're interested to know that. We have his eyes and his study, everything, and the rights to use his name. Wow. Okay. It all belongs to the and, Hebrew and, University. And, and you have a museum now with his name. Well, one of the things that I would like to do, and it's already in the works, is something that was done in Spain very successfully, emphasizing culture. And so they emphasize architecture and art and so on. Bilbao is a perfect example. Right. We need to do more of that in Israel. And I'm using Albert Einstein just as an example of the kind of uh, we need to create the Creativity Hall of Fame named after Albert Einstein in Jerusalem. And we are working on that right now. Um, uh, so, David, do you have any good examples yeah, that you can I, share? I, share? You. I mentioned Singapore before and, and you know, we, we recently had the, the death of its leader and creator. I mean, I think that I think Singapore is a is a place that if you ever really dissected, if you ever really dissected its its inner workings, and you know, it's sort of it's a bit of a Disneyland, adult Disneyland kind of a, of an orator when you're there, and it, it can be a bit autocratic, and yet it has this incredible people who live there love it. They think it's the greatest place in the world, which it is. It's an amazing place of commerce, of industry, of thinking, of uh, as closed as it is on one hand, uh, that's how open it is. And I think they've done an absolutely brilliant job. I think Vietnam has done a great job, believe it or not. Wow. You know, I, I don't know if you... What, what, what is it that Vietnam's done that... Uh, I don't know if you've been to Vietnam, but I have to tell you... I have. It, it, they have. They have done a brilliant job of transcending the past and looking into the future. And so the, when you go, they present you, you're presented with the war, you're presented with, with the issues, 
but it's not in a mean-spirited way. It's not in a way of, of looking for blame. It's just a way of saying, look, this is, this is who we were. This has built our character. And as you walk around and you see young people, we have an incredible office there. You walk around, you see young people who are energized, who are excited. Business opportunities there are fabulous. Uh, the the high-tech infrastructure is growing. So I think it's just another country that's done an amazing job of, of reinventing itself, of becoming open to tourism, open for open for business, and made it very, very clear um, that such is the that such is the case. So I think there there are any number of examples. Another great example is a city, is Berlin. You know, I think Berlin has done an incredible job of reinventing itself as a city, not just of culture or of politics, but of a city of creativity, of open thinking. Um, of of incredible art and innovation. So, so has that just happened, or is there some overt action that's been taken by the, you know, German ambassador to try and influence what that brand image is? How how, how what is it? You I doubt it's the German ambassador, but I I have to believe that it is the people of Berlin, the the mayor, whoever it was at the time, said, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make the city. You know, we have a problem. We're bringing two pieces of incredibly different culture together. It could be a huge disaster. How do we turn this into something bigger? How do we take areas of the city that kind of look devastated but make them look cool? And sure enough, what you end up with is creating an open place where people, where young artists can congregate, where musicians, where people who, who, in my business, designers, uh, creators, high-tech type of people, can come and feel comfortable. So, yeah, I think it was definitely a conscious decision on somebody's part. And then you merchandise it. You merchandise it around the world, which they do very well. So a, uh, a question and I'm going to... by the way, uh, a big yeah. part of it, by the way, is merchandise today by social media because young right. people know. You know, even as the ambassador knows, even in Israel, I mean, Berlin has become a... It, it, it's, it's a must-stop for young people. And are you it's using? A, it's, a, it's a go-to place for young people today. Are you using a lot of social media to try and help uh, promote the Israeli brand? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the statements I've made before, and I'm going to put this out for a very short answer, is, um, and, and I have to ask the ad guy uh, this question: You're going to shape your brand not just by doing advertising, but by changing the product or things that you do with the product, like the museum like what it is that Berlin's doing, like what it is that Spain has done, um, some of what is happening within Vietnam. Would you agree with that, David? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, because I think, the, remember, you, it, it's like any other, like, if, if, imagine this. Imagine that you pick up a can of Coke, right? That brand has spoken to you for 100 years. If you pick it up, you flip the top or unscrew the top, and you drink it and it's flat, or if the taste is off, you just killed the bread. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.